Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a restaurant industry podcast by The Last Bite Network, the product of Nations Restaurant News and Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne. My guest this week is Kevin Tien, the chef and creative mind behind Moon Rabbit, a modern Vietnamese restaurant in Washington, D.C., on the waterfront in the Intercontinental Hotel. We had an interesting talk. I think you'll enjoy it. But in the middle of our conversation, my phone started blaring with an emergency alert. I don't know if you can hear it in the podcast or, or if our editor managed to edit it out. I tried to silence it by sitting on my phone because it was already on mute and the emergency message seemed to know how to override my mute. I don't know. Anyway, the alert was a broadcast from the New York City government telling us the name of the suspect in the Brooklyn subway shooting that took place yesterday. That was a little over four hours ago, and they already found him in Manhattan's East Village. I was going to give you his description and the phone number of the tip line, but I guess we don't need it anymore. New York might seem like a chaotic place to people who don't live here, but it's really surprisingly civilized. And although our crime rates are reported on a lot because a lot of national media is based here, and our crime rates are increasing, they still remain below those of most major American cities. And this might not have occurred to you, but until yesterday, we really didn't have mass shootings in New York City. We do have our fair share of one-off gun violence and more stray bullets than anyone would like. It's a crowded city, that happens. But opening fire in crowds is new to us. We also have terrific first responders, which might be one reason why no one was killed in yesterday's attack. Anyway, that's what's on my mind. That's what's going on in my world. I will be on vacation for the next few days. I'm going to Denver for Passover and for my aunt's 90th birthday. But I'll be back in time for my next podcast. And now, here's Kevin Tien. Kevin Tien, nice to meet you. How you doing? Good. Pleasure to meet you as well. And you are the chef at Moon Rabbit, correct? Which uh, took the place, if if I know my geography correctly, of of Kith Kin Kwame Onwachi's place at the Intercontinental, right? Uh, correct. Um, and you you've been cooking for a long time. You've been you were with the Uchi people, and then you were with. Uh, Jose Andres, is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, working at uh, for Jose Andres at Oyemel was uh, actually uh, one of my first jobs when I moved to DC uh, back in 2013. And you're originally from, or you spent a lot of time growing up in Louisiana, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I went to high school and college in Louisiana. Uh, I didn't go to culinary school. I have a like traditional like four year degree and uh, a master's degree. In, like, finance and stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, undergraduate in finance and a master's in statistics. So were your parents very disappointed that you said, I'm going to be a chef? Uh, you know, I that's what I thought it would be in my mind. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, like, just the first generation, like, uh, like Asian-American to, like, immigrant parents. Right. You know, uh, yeah, they always want like more for their kids than like working uh what we people lay was like a blue collar job. Right. Uh but you know, I, 
I think at the end of the day, they just want us to like find something to do uh, that makes us happy. And, uh, you know, if we're also successful at it, it's a bonus. And you, you know, you were successful. You were a food and wine best new chef pretty recently, right? In 2018, is that right? That's correct. Uh, I was, you know, uh, very honored to get the title of like uh, one of food and wine's best new chefs in 2018 uh, with 10 other chefs. Uh, And that that was before Moon Rabbit, right? Yeah. uh, Yes. Before Moon Rabbit. And then... uh, October, November of 2020. Right. And so uh, not great timing to open a restaurant. But where, so where were you when you got the Food and Wine Best New Chefs uh, Award? Uh, I got uh, that award when I was working at Himitsu, which was like my first restaurant that I did on my own uh, with a partner named Carly Steiner. Himitsu, that sounds Japanese. Is it, was it Japanese? Uh, it is. Uh, yes. So Himitsu translates to secret. We are a very like Japanese uh, inspired restaurant, but we did like pull uh, globally um, from like, just like more of my background. So I think that's what like made the restaurant like really cool and fun. Or like a lot of the techniques and the ideas of the dishes were like rooted in Japan. Uh, we would like finish the dish or an idea would veer off into like a little a bit of like Vietnamese touches, like Southern touches. So it was like uh, a really unique dining experience. You, yeah, you are a Southern Vietnamese American from Louisiana, right? Yeah, uh, at least that's how I identify the most. Uh, I kind of grew up everywhere in the U.S., born in Texas, over in Hawaii, Seattle, California. But I would say like my, uh, my formative years uh, were definitely in Louisiana. Well, and what part of Louisiana were you in? in? So I went to high school in Lafayette, Louisiana. A lot of people say that's like uh, the heart of Cajun country. Right. Uh, and then I uh, moved to New Orleans for college, uh, but my first semester I was displaced uh, by Hurricane Katrina. And then I transferred over to uh, LSU, Louisiana State University. Uh, and I just, you know, worked in Baton Rouge, which is uh, the capital of Louisiana. Right. And that also, that's like south of Lafayette, right? It's sort of Cajun adjacent Baton Rouge. Yeah, uh, definitely big college town, Right. you know. If you follow college football, you know, LSU always has, like, a very solid season. Uh, I, so. I don't follow college football, but I also know that LSU always has a very solid season. So that's cool. And and there's a large Vietnamese community in Louisiana, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, huge Vietnamese population, especially, like, uh, in New Orleans. Uh, it's, like, the third largest, like, Vietnamese community like outside of, like, Houston and California. Yeah, it's now considered sort of part of the whole New Orleans melting pot that that allows that city's cuisine to continue to evolve and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a whole like a sub cuisine that, you know, uh, that's like Viet Cajun, uh, which is like really exciting to like to learn about and to eat. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've heard about that, that that like crawfish boils, but like with Vietnamese spices and stuff is supposed to be a big thing and it sounds awesome yeah it's uh very tasty and i can't wait to like go back to louisiana in a couple weeks to to enjoy some of it and so did you grow up uh eating you know local southern vietnamese kind of food or it's probably yeah because you're in louisiana you ate a too probably 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, in uh, in Lafayette, Louisiana, it's it's so funny. In in high school, uh, I think like uh, the food you get in high school is like very like different anywhere you go. You know, there's like the standard like pizza and milk and and whatever on the side, but like uh, being in Louisiana, there are days where you get like red beans and rice, or you get like a like a day where they had like fried catfish like during Lent. So it was it was always nice eating like a lot of like this like southern food. Uh, and, you know, a lot of my friends were uh, in Lafayette, like they would cook a lot of Southern food when I would hang out with them at their house. And then when they came over to like our house, we would like cook a lot of Vietnamese food. So it was like a really cool to like share like each other's like cuisine and culture. That is cool. And how did you get into restaurants? Uh, I started working in restaurants to kind of uh, just, I wanted to buy my, my first car in high school uh so i actually uh applied for a job at this chinese restaurant uh because they're like looking for sushi chefs at like this chinese restaurant uh doing sushi for a buffet and they wouldn't hire me they were like oh you're just a kid you don't have any experience uh i was like that's fair so but i also saw another uh ad for an actual like sushi restaurant in town called tsunami and uh you know they gave me a chance they like they knew i didn't have any experience but they saw I was like very eager. I was like very thorough in my application. So they're like, oh, let's let's hire this guy. He uh, you know, he like literally filled out every single line on this job application and like no one ever does that. No. Well, so, so that's that's good advice for people. Yeah, they they figured since if I was thorough in my application, I would be thorough in my work. Uh and you know, and I, I think it takes like a uh a, a unique kind of like manager or boss to like really like see the little things that uh like a employee or a team member does to like really see their full potential so so it's like really nice and i worked with them all through college uh cooking and they really made me love food you know uh great work environment Uh, i was like one of those restaurants where they say like you know uh the staff is family they like truly treated you as like family so what and that was your first time cooking right you didn't go to culinary school so were they just like, here, peel this, chop that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, as a sushi restaurant, they're like, okay, you're going to make rice for a while. And then after making rice, like, I was like, let's great. Uh, and then they like got me my first knife. And then like, all right, we're going to teach you how to like roll like the basic sushi rolls. And, and I stayed with that company all through college. So like from high school to college through my advanced degree, that's like a good like eight, nine years. You know, and I like started off as like this sushi prep cook, and whenever I like finished college and I left, uh, and to move to DC, I was like the executive sushi chef. So you know, they like they like took a chance on me, and and what's really cool is like they never said no to anything I would ask. If I wanted to like run a special or try something new, they're like uh, they were always like very encouraging. You know, I said like, you know, just do it. We want you to do like what you want to do. And even when it came to like school, I'm like, hey, I need some time off of school. They were always flexible with everything, you know. Uh, I don't think they ever told me no once. That's awesome. And where where in Louisiana was Tsunami? Or is Tsunami if it's still there? Uh, they started in Lafayette, Louisiana, which is like my hometown where my family lives. Right. And then expanded to Baton Rouge, uh, which was great because uh, that's where I transferred after Katrina. Right. So and you're working for the same like family. And then uh, they recently, or I say recent, but like 
five years ago they opened one in New Orleans. So, so that's a little chain that maybe I should be watching. Tsunami, because you don't think of or the first thing you think of when you think of of Lafayette is not sushi. Oh yeah, no, not at all. You know, it's uh, everyone says it's the heart of Cajun country, so you think a lot about like like true like Cajun food, not like Creole food, but right? Like, like red beans and rice. Absolutely. And crawfish. And crawfish and boudin. Mm. And... That's good food. And so so how did you end up, I, I guess your first kind of like, I don't know, big name bougie restaurant job was with Tyson Cole at Uchi, right? Yeah. You know, I uh, so I did, did my master's degree, graduated in 2012. I said, great. I like spent all this money on a uh on like a master's degree what do i want to do next and i got like two job offers i got uh one job offer uh you know basic like analysts kind of like position um just like working on projects and the second offer was like oh do you want to be a sushi chef at uchi and uh you know i was still like doing sushi at the time and i was like uh and whenever I graduated in 2012, like statistics was like data analytics was like still kind of like a new field. Uh, so there, there were a few jobs, but not that many yet. Not like there are now. Uh, so I took the, the job in Houston. I wanted to like find my way to Texas. I love Houston. I worked at Uchi uh, and really like had always like liked food. But over there, like really like opened my mind to like seeing what like uh, like what cooking like on a, on another level is like being like really progressive with your cuisine. So what are some dishes or techniques or, you know, moments of revelation that, that maybe you remember uh, when you started at Uchi? New things you didn't know you could do. I remember they, you know, they uh, they'd like dehydrated a lot of stuff and candied a lot of things right to like create like different textures and flavors like uh one thing i loved that they did was they uh would dehydrate and candy uh like onions and the way they cut the onions you know if you you cut it like vertically you see like these still the, the frills of the inside of the onion right they would put it in they would dip it in simple syrup and dehydrate it and it became this like really cool looking like onion chip uh it was like beautiful um there's a there's a a chef there who like made like a liquid a flavored liquid and then he like uh set it set the liquid in a tube and made like noodles out of it uh and then he had to use like a uh, an air compressor to like push the noodles out so he made like liquid flavored noodles which was like really cool uh and then obviously like uh their sushi program is amazing they would get their fish in from japan multiple times a week so just just seeing like so many like new new different types of fish uh, was like really awesome to me. Yeah, that's cool. So this liquid noodle, that was, um, did they solidify it with some sort of gel? Like, uh, I don't know, either either agar-agar or methyl cellulose or something like that? Yeah, they said it with uh, agar-agar because uh, they wanted to keep the dish like strictly vegetarian. If I remember there was like, uh, they like shaved squash and zucchini, like really thin laid it out. And they dried it so it made like this this bridge across like a bowl they had the pasta on the bottom and then there were also like 
more tomatoes, but the tomatoes would be like on top of that, like squash the zucchini bridge. And the idea was like, uh, I think I remember if you'd like pour the sauce in and you'd break everything over, over the top and everything would like fall into the bowl. That's fun. Interactive dining. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, it was like the first time, like, uh, I don't say like avant-garde, uh, but, you know, it's like, it's like very, it is fun. It's fun. It's interactive. It was like very different. I hadn't seen food like that before, uh, especially in Louisiana. Well, that's part of the fun of Houston. It's a huge cosmopolitan city with all sorts of stuff going on. And now you're in another big, not as big as Houston, but a big cosmopolitan city with a lot of stuff going on at uh, Moon Rabbit. Moon Rabbit. And uh, and so this is kind of, I think, it sounds like it's your first sort of Vietnamese-focused restaurant. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, this restaurant opened, like I said, like after the pandemic started, which is kind of a crazy time to open a restaurant, right? Like, uh, I don't think anyone in there, right? Mine was like, oh, great, the restaurant industry is crashing. Let's open uh, a big restaurant. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's like a great opportunity. I had um started cooking a lot more Vietnamese food during the pandemic because it's kind of like my comfort go-to mm-hmm. and I was still trying to figure out I was like well uh how am I going to be a chef in like this pandemic era like what do I want to cook and I think a lot of it was like uh you know I want to start cooking food that's more representative of like my family and my culture and our history uh, but I didn't want to do traditional Vietnamese food uh so you know so they're there's Moon Rabbit now. It's like we do a lot of traditional Vietnamese flavors, but when you eat our food, like nothing looks like traditional Vietnamese food, like nothing at all. So, um, so, so what, what are some dishes that you're cooking now that, that sort of exemplify your, your approach? You know, one of the uh, things that we talked about earlier was like the Cajun crawfish boil. Uh-huh. You know, uh, so we take a lot of like those flavors and we actually make a pasta. Uh, and it sounds like pretty simple, but this, this pasta is like, a it's like so, too many steps <laughs> to be honest. Um, so, you know, when you get via Cajun, uh, crawfish, the, after you're done with the, like boiling the crawfish, you toss it in a lot of like garlic and butter. Cause like, it's very delicious. Right. Yeah. So one of the things we do is we take a lot of garlic. We do this like multiple times a week and, uh, we like mix it with koji. Uh-huh. to an off it and we make miso out of the garlic Ooh, and that's like a a two-week process for us so, you know temperature time controlled uh two weeks we make we have uh garlic koji that comes out with pureed and we have this like roasted garlic miso how so how does the fermentation process change the flavor of the garlic you know uh so we roasted garlic so there's like a slightly like sweet taste mm-hmm. um then it adds like a little bit of this, like, it's like a, it's like funk to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like a good kind of funk, like a fermenting, fermenting notes to like garlic. Mm-hmm. And after we have this like roasted semi-sweet, like, uh, like funky, like garlic miso paste, mm-hmm. take that. Uh, and we want to really want to like amp up the seafood flavor in the pasta for the boil. Uh, so we, what we do is we, uh, like cook down a lot of like garlic ginger onions and then we actually take crab fat and we also like cook that down into it and then after we cook that 
we take the we add in a little bit of Shaoxing wine and uh, the garlic miso, and then we blend it smooth with a lot of butter. Uh, and when we say a lot of a lot of butter, the sauce ends up this paste ends up being like uh, like probably seventy percent butter, thirty percent of uh, the original like crap that garlic miso. Which you know, butter noodles are great. Yeah, and then uh, you know, and then when it comes to our pasta, uh, it's like a quarter pound of like crawfish tails. Uh, we add more butter whenever we're making the sauce, and then you know, lots of black pepper, garlic chives, more fresh garlic, and then the noodle uh, we make is like a, a tamomi style noodle, which is like a thicker, wavy ramen noodle. Uh, so it really like holds all the sauce very well. So that does sound like a combination of, of Japanese and Vietnamese and Cajun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's like a, a really like cool dish to have. And like, if you go to a lot of like a Vietnamese restaurants, they'll always have, they'll always have some version of like garlic noodles. So it's our like version of like garlic crawfish noodles. Sounds pretty awesome. And so you've been open for uh, almost two years, a year and a half. Yeah, I'll say about a year and a half, you know, uh, and, you know, we opened and then with mandates, we closed and then we opened again. So I would say I've been in the building for a year and a half, but we've probably only been cooking for uh, right over a year of it. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, And what we just do with everybody, I remember talking to a chef in Napa uh, toward the end of last year and asking so you know, what have you been doing? How have you managed? And he was talking for like five, 10 minutes. And he said, and then the fire started. And I was like, oh, we're only in June of 2020. Damn. Like, because in Napa, that's how much stuff happened. Um, yeah. So, and so how you're, you're in a hotel, right? So that's hard, but, and you're in, like at the heart of sort of the waterfront area of, of DC. So did you have many customers? How, how has that worked out? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's funny, like, we look back on it, and we have our reservations. And you know, it's, it's definitely tough, right, to open a restaurant during the pandemic, there's a lot of people that weren't comfortable with dining out. And you know, and we did our best to like, make it make sure everyone like felt safe, we had uh, our tables were more than six, apart. our tables were like anywhere from like 10 to 15 feet apart, right. So a restaurant that can normally seat up to like, 160 200 people, we could fit like 30 people max now. And still, you're still that spread out. Uh, you know, now that the vaccination rates have gone up and everything's like a lot safer and people are more comfortable dining out, you know, uh, our we aren't at full capacity. We're I would say like we're at like eighty percent, uh, because you know they're they're still like we want to be cautious, we want to be safe, we want to like uh respect everyone's like concerns in their space. So mm-hmm. you know, we're we're finding like a good a good blend. That's that's awesome, and and your customers are psyched about your food. Yeah, uh, at least I I hope so. You know, it's it's like one of those things, right? Like uh, I think uh, if you know uh, like how I cook, and you come in, you're like uh, very excited about it, uh, and you know to expect something different. You know, uh, but I think if you like kind of like uh, walk in generally and you don't know anything about the restaurant, and you're like, oh, it's a Vietnamese restaurant. And you look at the menu, uh, it can be a little like polarizing to some people, right? Because they're like, oh, where's the pho? Where's like the rice plates? And like, we don't, we don't have any of those things. But I think like 
once they order a few items and they taste it, they can like, they're like, oh, this dish is like very Vietnamese. And you uh, get the chance to like learn more about my, like my background. Like, oh, he's also from Louisiana. And like, then everything really starts to come together and it makes sense. And you're like, I was like, oh, and this is, it sounds like very cheesy and cliche, but there's like storytelling through our food, right? And you can say like, oh, this is when he grew up in Louisiana or, oh, this is when he like lived in Texas, obviously. And, and it's like, uh, you know, I, I feel like my cooking is definitely a, a good timeline and picture of like me as like a first generation Vietnamese American uh, in the U.S. When climate wise, I, I, although I lived in Thailand for a while, I've never been to Vietnam, but I would think climate wise, Vietnam and Louisiana would be pretty similar, you know, hot, humid. 100%. It's a, it's humid all the time and you're sticky. <laughs> yeah, it's just different herbs. That's about it. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's like, a, like the really cool thing, you know, um, you know, uh, there's so many, you can be like 2000 miles apart, but the climate's so similar that, uh, you know, Louisiana has like a lot of different chilies and then like Vietnam has like a lot of different chilies. Right. right. But the, the idea is like very similar. So I think that's what I really like about like doing like food that's like Louisiana and Vietnamese. It's like, how, where can I find the similarities and then like find a way to like, um, to create uh, like, like a, but it's a new cuisine for me personally. You know, this like uh, Viet Cajun American cuisine. Right. So what, what are some uh, other dishes that you're doing at Moon Rabbit these days? Uh, this one's like really, really fun. Uh, being the first person in my family born here in the U.S. It was like very important uh, for them to like raise me as a, like an Amer- as an American, right? Right. Uh, and to be American, it's like, oh, what, what do Americans like to do? It's we barbecue on the weekends. Uh, what's more uh, American than eating at McDonald's? Uh, and, you know, it's like little things like that. And like, you know, my uncle would drink like Budweiser. It's an American beer. Uh, so for a while on our menu and it's coming back, uh, we had like our riff on a filet of fish for McDonald's. Sure. And, McDonald's filet fish is good, uh, but it, but we it's like we can we can do like a, a nicer version of it. So our version, we make our own like uh, milk bun, but we have like our blend of curry spices in it. Mm-hmm. So you have like curry milk bun, soft, fluffy, super tasty. And then on there, you have to do fried fish. So we do a local catfish here that's uh, blue catfish that's native to Maryland, and it's an invasive species. And we eat a lot of fried catfish in Louisiana. Right. Uh, now, how do we like make the dish like more like Vietnamese? So there's a Vietnamese dish uh, of like turmeric and lemongrass marinated like catfish, and you normally like uh, cook it with a lot of like dill and green onions and like a very hot pan, so you get like this nice like smoky charred flavor. So we marinate the catfish in like the same marinade, and then we panko fry it. And then we serve it with tartar sauce that's like uh, loaded up with like dill and scallions. And then it's like lightly smoked. So you get like the flavors of like this Vietnamese dish, but in like a very fancy like McDonald's like uh, sandwich wrapper, <laughs> sandwich like presentation. Yeah. So it looks like a filet fish, but it has all this Vietnamese stuff going on. And you're helping to, to 
eliminate or cut down on the, the population of blue catfish, which, as you said, is an invasive species in the Chesapeake. So, absolutely. You know, uh, all the boxes. Yes. I mean, I, the McDonald's filet of fish actually is also a sustainable seafood. It's Alaska Pollock, but that's not as much as fun a story as blue catfish from the Chesapeake. <laughs> And how much how much can you I, charge for a uh, a blue catfish Vietnamese filet of fish? You know, uh, we charge like twelve bucks for it, and it's like we say it's a slider, but uh, whenever we make it, I like like having the overhang of the fish outside of the bun. Yeah. So like, it's a pretty it's a pretty big sandwich, and I was like, man, this is a good deal. Uh, and you know, and that's like uh, a whole like another topic of like. Uh, pricing and how I like view the value of like uh, Vietnamese food and how we price it. In other words, you should get what you the you should get what it's worth. And it's a lot of work to make Vietnamese food. Yeah, you know, we make our bread from scratch, we make our tartar sauce from scratch, we make the pickles from scratch. You know, like we're like can we're like breaking down all this catfish and filleting it. Uh and like the marinade, you know, uh I'm not I'm not McDonald's, you know, I don't have like uh all this automation and technology to like help like lower costs, you know, I'm doing everything myself. So. Well, and you're in a, a beautiful space. I haven't seen it since it's been moon rabbit, but I was there when it was Kith Kin. It's a gorgeous space in the intercontinental with the beautiful view of the waterfront and all that. You can charge for that. I think, I mean, do people, what, what, what about is the average check for a, a meal at uh, uh, moon rabbit? You know, uh, average per person, uh, it's around like anywhere from 55 to like 65. And that's like appetizer, entree, dessert, and like a beverage. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, I live in New York City. So for me, that's cheap. But I know that, that it's less cheap in D.C. But still, it, it, our, it seems maybe, maybe, maybe not, but it seems like people are getting more willing to pay for non-Japanese Asian food. They've always paid for Japanese food, but other Asian cuisines, there's been more hesitancy. But do you think people are, are warming up to the idea? Uh, a little bit. I think we still have like a long ways to go, uh, right? And, you know, a lot of it isn't even just like people that aren't like Vietnamese. I, uh, it's like I just spoke on a panel about this recently, about like the perception of Asian food and sometimes like uh that that perception that keeps like the price of Asian food down comes from like even your own community you know uh and but I think it's changing right it's uh there's like a new generation of uh people like dining out and they're understanding the value of like the labor that goes into it and they understand like you know how much chicken costs right now during a pandemic is not the same as how much like chicken costs like before the pandemic like you know, uh, good Lord, have you seen the price of like chicken wings? Like, you know, chicken wings used to be like, oh, you can buy chicken wings anywhere for like super cheap. Uh, but now like chicken wings are like, are like gold. <laughs> right. Totally. Uh, well, how about things like blue catfish? Do you get a good deal on buying invasive species? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we saw a lot, uh, of catfish and, you know, and like, uh, our catfish is, and it fluctuates from anywhere from like five to like eight dollars a pound. Uh, like really tasty, really flaky. 
great for the environment. Uh, but there's, you know, obviously, and then we have like, we get uh, like Westeros salmon, which is like one of the oldest like uh, hand-raised salmon farms uh, <laughs> out of like Europe. And, you know, that, that salmon is like 24 to $27 a pound, you know, which, um, you know, it's a this idea of like, kind of like balancing your menu, uh, choosing products you're like really in love with, you know, and, and for us, like we do a very good job of like pricing our dish for like exactly what the value is. Right. Like, so like make sure like the business works and like the pricing is fair. Like, you know, if they're, if someone comes in like, man, why is this chicken so expensive? It's like, oh, it's because chicken is expensive for us right now. So we have to like raise the price on it. We, we can't, uh, as a business support to like keep things low because the perception of that like dish is like a cheap item. Well, and the chicken also isn't going to butcher itself and the stock isn't yeah. going to be made by itself. Or, and you have you to know, people. Uh, all our pricing is uh, like true and honest, like do our food cost thing figure out the percentage that we need our food cost to be in. So that's like from like 25 to 30%, you know, uh, and then we just like do the multiplier and that's the price of the dish. So you, you don't necessarily uh, take more of a hit on something like a steak and then make the profit on a, on a, on a noodle dish, for, for example, you, you cost out each individual dish or is it more, uh, the menu overall and the sales mix adds up to a, a food cost of 25 to 30%. You know, we, we try to keep it like average 25%. So there are like some items that are like down to the 20%. There's some things up to like the 30%, but you know, I, I want people to like, uh, to pay for like, actually like what, thing. Uh, you know, like, and that's it. That's just like, that's the price of food. I'm like really big on like getting, like the public to understand like, Hey, you know, labor's this much food is this much, you know, uh, if diners want to continue eating out like into the future and you want like your favorite restaurants to stick around, you have to, you're going to have to like pay things what it's worth. And that's food and that's people. Uh, and that's everything that goes into like having a really cool independent restaurant, like in your town. True. Well, and, and you studied finance and businesses. So you're probably good at explaining the cost of things to people. Yeah, uh, you know, I can explain it, but it depends if, uh, if people are willing to listen, you know. And, and you know, and, and normally uh, when you get people around, like a, a good, like, meal, a good plate of food, uh, it's easy to have these conversations, right? And like, because you capture their attention uh, and then, like, the food's right there and they can, you can visualize it, you can understand it. And they're like, oh, I understand this makes sense. But if I'm just like, uh, if I wrote it on a sign and I like hung it outside, hung it randomly somewhere, like people would be like, yeah, whatever. I don't believe that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people want to, you know, see math homework hanging outside the restaurant anyway. I think that would bum them out a little bit. But uh, I don't know. Actually, I think that could be kind of fun. I saw, I saw a... Uh, It was like a, a sign in a bar that, that I'm trying to remember what it was, but it was like that if you, if you, it's, they got out chemically about it and said, you know, this is a cocktail and you, you mix all these things together. It's a solution. So cocktails are the solution. 
to your problem. Uh, yeah, I love those like sort of signs outside of businesses. I'm like yeah. a, I'm like a yeah. really awesome, like love a good pun. Yes, and math jokes. Math jokes are always fun. Uh, well, Kevin Tian, we're about out of time, but it was really great to meet you and talk to you. And uh, I hope we get to do it in real life sometime. We'll have to find my way down to DC. Yeah, absolutely. And like, let me know when you're down here. We'd love to have you in the restaurant, uh, and we can like chit chat more. That would be great. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you.